This is WCN. The Whole Care Network. You talk. We listen. Content presented on the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent views of the Whole Care Network. Always consult your physician for medical and fitness advice, and always consult your attorney for legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. I never found chasing anything aesthetic to be a good idea because I can find you in the gym easily 100 people who are ripped muscle, really lean. And I could put them all naked in front of the mirrors and none of them are going to be completely happy. We all have our stories. And by sharing them, we can truly show the power of the human spirit. Hello, my name is Jody O'Donnell Ames. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Gratitude to Latitude Stories of Resilience and Hope. Today, my guest is Rob Matthews. He is a former strength coach, Pilates instructor, and I have to say, the first ever male Pilates instructor I've met the partner at MK Home Solutions, and a person who focuses on helping people battle obesity. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I forgot to mention you're also the father of a sweet 11-year-old. I am, yeah, my uh, the apple of my eye, otherwise known as my minion or my co-conspirator. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. So welcome to the show, and you are calling in from... Ottawa. Canada. Ottawa, Canada. Yeah. Ottawa, Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I usually start my podcast out with a question about childhood mm-hmm. because, and if you've listened to any of my previous uh, podcasts, I believe that who we are as children is really important because we aren't intimidated or embarrassed by certain things. So we are our true selves as children. Mm-hmm. So is there a story about who you were as a child which resonates or parlays into your life now and what you're doing in your life at the age of 40? 48, yeah. 48, okay. Yeah. So I had someone tell me today that they're giving free shots to people over 50. I said, well, thanks, but (laughs) (laughs) thanks for the vote of confidence. Not yet. (laughs) I thought about that question and I thought, for what I'm doing right now, Yes and no. I guess my biggest life-changing childhood experience was I have an uncle, Uncle Stephen. We're from the East Coast, Canada. And I remember as a kid, we were on a boat and he took his shirt off and he was the first bodybuilder I'd ever, I was probably seven. And he was the first bodybuilder mm-hmm. I'd ever seen in real life. From that day on, I kept his picture in my bedroom. I became obsessed with weightlifting and it carried me through well, till even today, he really stirred a love for it for me. And it directed my most of my career path, not my current. It directed my 20, 20 year career path. It directed me. It kept me when growing up, I grew up 
with some people that were a bit rough around the edges. They would go out and say, break into a house. I'd stay home Friday evening and work out. They would, they discovered wow. different drugs. I stayed home and worked out. I barely drank. I no interest in drugs. So it kind of cultivated into a very, that one moment sort of cultivated into a real, just an absolute, um, trying to think of the right words here, just a, a great direction for my future. And obviously at age seven, I had no idea if it was going to have that kind of impact, but that was what set me off to falling in love with bodybuilding and uh, was this uncle of mine who, who I just, was he actually a bodybuilder? Yeah, he would work. He was he always been big. He's 70, 74 right now, or just turned 75. And he's still, still really built. Like the guy's still full in working out. And shortly after, and, and I guess in my teens, my father started to work out as well. So that caught on. And I got my first set of weights at age 12 and I never looked back. I stood on stage bodybuilding in 97 in my 20s. Natural. I stayed drug free. And then it developed into a career for me. I ended up at age 20 years old, started becoming a personal trainer. I just went to a meeting one day or a um, speaker one day. And she, when she finished her speech, she said, those who want to go on, maybe become strength training coaches, here's your next thing to do. Here's where you go to school. I immediately signed up. I was sold. And I signed up. And uh, I was one of two of the first trainers for the YMCA. And... I went on to about a 20-year career. Yeah, I opened up an obesity clinic. I got invited to speak at conferences. Let me pause you yeah, there for one absolutely. second. Let's go back to when you were seven. So how does a seven-year-old without weights begin bodybuilding? I'm just I curious. I started actually, I, well, it, to me, it was fitness. So I started, I would go home and I would run. I would run in the field behind the house. I had a track suit, like a, a windbreaker suit. I'd run and get a sweat on and... <laughs> Then I'd run around, I had two five-pound weights. I'd run around the block with them and whatever I could do to kind of get fit. I just fell in love with fitness. I think the reason I wanted to ask you that question is, I think it's really important for people to know that you don't need a gym. Oh, absolutely. You do not need a gym to get fit. And you can start where you are with what you have. 100%. 100%. We could go down, we could have a whole podcast on that. <laughs> Right, right. So your your uncle really was a mentor, got you started. And then you we're beginning to talk about your clinic for obesity. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I was have a, a friend of mine who's a doctor in Ottawa, and we would often rec refer our I'd refer my clients to him. He'd refer my patients to me or his patients to me. And we noticed that neither one ever followed up. So the patients we were referring would never take the extra step to, if I had a, pay, a client and I thought, geez, you know, you're next measuring over 17, you're a candidate for sleep apnea, then I would recommend to go see this doctor. And they just wouldn't follow up. And keep in mind, they don't pay for it here. This is this is free, well, free healthcare. It wasn't a, a monetary thing. This wouldn't sign up. And then he would tell me, oh, I sent you this client or this patient, he needs a lot of help here, he's diabetic they would never follow up with me. So we got talking and we decided to create an all-in-one place that they could just come to. It was 100% science-based. There's no gimmick. It was simply get moving more, eat less. There was no eat only protein or take needles. or It was completely science-based and just 
a healthy approach to weight loss. And we had a lot of success. It's still running today. But yeah, we had a lot of success with it. And we had met a lot of incredible people. Got to see a lot of, be part of a lot of incredible stories. Prior to that, I was very focused on strength training, high intensity stuff. During those years, I really developed a love for what you just talked about is just moving. Whether you're dancing at home, whether you're going for a walk, whether you're going for a golf game, it didn't have to be a big investment. It just had to be moving. And I learned a lot about that. So you talked about moving and eating. So for these clients, Mm -hmm. you didn't have a specific diet or nutrition, nutritional guideline. You basically just had them uh, reduce calories, but it wasn't like you went keto or you went vegetarian or... The whole point is you want to live, you want to find, so there's best weight. So best weight, people have different ideas. So best weight would be defined as the the most healthy weight you can live at while still enjoying life. So your best weight, if you're starting at 350, your best weight might be 250. You are still a hundred pounds lower than you were, but you might find someone 225, they get to 165 and they don't want to cut anything else out. They feel they're at a part where they can maintain what they're eating for life. That's your best weight. You know what I mean? And I'm guessing too, that best weight also means you feel energized. You feel alive. You feel healthy. You feel good. And coming from, if you're coming from obesity, if you're coming from 400 pounds, you hit 250, you're going to feel fantastic. Now, if you're coming from 130 and hit 250, you're going to feel terrible. So where you're coming from is going to make a huge difference. So every 10% of weight loss you get, so if you're 300, every 10% you lose, you drop your comorbidities of, of obesity by 10%. So when you go from 300, 270, you are 10% less likely to die from obesity-related illness, heart attack, stroke, diabetes, etc. And then when you lose your next 10%, now it's 27 pounds, again, that number comes down 10% again. It's kind of like they have said that people who smoke for years and years and years, if you stop, there's an immediate improvement in your health and longevity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can reverse damage that has occurred because of smoking or obesity. Absolutely. Which is just, it's just a miracle, really is. You can have such a great quality of life, still be, I mean, I, I don't, I never found chasing anything aesthetic to be a good idea because I can find you in the gym easily, a hundred people who are, ripped muscle, really lean, and I could put them all naked in front of the mirrors and none of them are going to be completely happy. So to me, that's so true. That is so true. I would get people in my office and my first thing I'd ask them is they would, I say, you know, why do you want to lose weight? And they'd say, I want to be healthier. Well, you need to define health for you. You can't health. If you don't have a definitive goal, you will fail. So to somebody, health might be to run a marathon. To somebody who is battling obesity for 30 years, health may be like, I met a fellow who couldn't walk to the bus stop, which was about 800 meters or 800 yards 
from his front door. So not far. I was going to say it could be going up the stairs. Yeah. It could, I used to have my clients, if anybody under 50, I'd make them get up off the floor. And if they couldn't, we'd put that in their goals. You need to be able to get off the floor. I've done that on Instagram, uh, where you get off the floor without your yes. hands. That's, that is a test for longevity, yeah. if you can get up without using your hands. And they don't see the importance until you paint a picture for them. You say, if you're crossing at a crosswalk, and let's say you stumble, well, you are stuck in the middle of the street until somebody can come and help you. And that, you don't want to get to the point where you're mortified. And you need to see that if you're home alone and you fall, can you get up? It's a survival skill. It's not just longevity. It's a survival skill, which I guess, yes, is inherently directly connected to longevity. But it's a skill. I, to, I want to get you to the point that you think is healthy. It doesn't matter what I think is healthy. And I appreciate <clears throat> that everybody has their different definition of what it means to be healthy. I have seen people who were probably 40 or 50 pounds overweight, mm -hmm. but they were energetic. They swam like mm -hmm. miles yes. in, the, in the lake and they, you know, the, it, it worked for mm -hmm. them. So everybody, everybody's body is different and, and to respect where they are and what's healthy. Which brings me to, you know, we are in the holiday season. Mm -hmm. We are approaching a new year. What is the one thing, I know you mentioned to move and to reduce calories, but is there any other thing, an additional recommendation that you have for people when it comes to losing weight? Well, for when it comes to losing weight, just be mindful. Celebrating with a large meal from a health perspective is no different than celebrating with a cigarette. It's not healthy. So when you can wrap your head around it, like you wouldn't say to your kids, like you did really... You know, you had a great day. Let's celebrate your birthday with four cigarettes. But you would say, let's celebrate your birthday with Kentucky Fried Chicken and a giant cake. And you can gorge. So when people come to recognize that relationship with food, food shouldn't be used as a reward. Food can be celebratory, but quantity shouldn't be. So you might have a food you really enjoy. But I'll tell you, the two best bites of food are the first and the last. You take the first bite of something delicious, you assess it, you, wow, this is incredible. Then you get talking as you finish it, and that last bite, you're like, that was really good. You often miss those middle bites. There's no reason to gorge in the holidays. And if you can get the, your head wrapped around that, that's a game changer. When you look at calories, there was a great study done in middle school, was middle schools or high schools? High schools in the States with zero intervention. There was absolutely zero intervention. There was nothing in the classroom. All they did was post calories in the cafeteria. That's it. They did nothing but post the calories. Cheeseburger sales went down. Pizza sales went down. High calorie mm -hmm. food sales went down without any other education. So the best thing to do, if you're serious about losing weight, you would never go shopping and not put a value on something. The best way to explain that to you is that shirt you're wearing. It's a nice shirt. If you saw that shirt in the store, which you did, when you saw that shirt in the store, did you look at the price tag? Everybody looks at the price tag. If the shirt you're wearing right now was priced at $1,200, would you have bought it? No. Because you have an immediate value to money. 
And people need to do that with calories. They need to learn, mm. not obsessive. Oh, that's a great example. Not obsessive, but you need to look at something. You look at the shirt and you immediately say, this shirt is not worth $1,200. And you put it back because you know your budget. You also know roughly how much you can spend. You know roughly, people have no clue with calories what they can spend or how they're spending it. You would never go buy a car and come home and I say, what'd you pay for the car? I don't know. I gave the guy access to my bank account. Whatever it costs, it costs. Yeah, so two very important things, everything in moderation, Mm -hmm. one, and know your expenditure. I mean, I I studied this as a personal trainer, right? Obviously, calories in, calories out. You know, how, how much are you moving? Because... If you're not moving very much, you don't need many calories. And to keep that in mind. And to quantify that, it takes roughly an entire marathon to burn one pound. So to burn a pound off just through moving, you're looking at walking seven to eight hours or running three to four hours to burn off one pound. So you never want to reward your exercise with poor dietary choices. Now, again, I would never preach to not have cake or to not have ice cream or to not have pizza. What I would preach is you don't need to eat four or five slices. You don't need to eat three cups of ice cream at a serving. Have a half cup. You will be satiated. Have a couple. It's a lot of it's just bad habits is you just look at pizza. Whenever I get a pizza, I have four slices. Have two. I teach a conscious eating class, and this is part of the discussion that we have. And I think another thing to really concentrate on when you're talking about wellness is your habits that you have had forever since you were Mm -hmm. little, you know, and and I always bring this up, like children, little children will eat until until they're full. Mm -hmm. They will eat and then leave. They're so excited about life. They'll leave most of the food on the Mm -hmm. plate. They nibble. And that's what I do. I'm a nibbler. So I eat, you know, six small meals a day. And so I never feel full and tired. Mm -hmm. Because it just keeps me going and and steady. But if I were to sit down and eat a regular plate of food, which I have not done in probably a decade, like it's always a small plate, a salad plate, I would literally want to just go to sleep (laughs) because I'm not used to it. So I think just recognizing the habits that we have that started when we were very little that we just assume, just like looking at eating in a car, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> eating eating food in a car. Like bring it home, sit down, eat it, take chew carefully, be grateful for the food you have, and don't eat it in a rush and, and not even be aware of what you're doing. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. There was a great, you said the plate size thing. I don't know if you've read the book, Mindless Eating. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It's Brian Wensick from Cornell University. He has a food lab there. You would love this book, and I highly recommend anybody finding our conversation interesting at this point. I highly recommend Mindless Eating. He does a study in there where what they did is they, and you can probably find on YouTube as well, they had people come into the lab. They don't know what, you don't know you're in a lab. You think you're helping out these people become waiters and waitresses or servers, I guess is the correct term now. Forgive me. So you go and you serve your own plate. Then they bring it to your table for you. As he gets there, he coughs or sneezes on your plate and says, I'm very sorry, please go serve yourself again. When you go for the second time, 
They have a larger, slightly lar 20% larger plate. You don't realize it. You fill the plate up again. They weighed everyone's plate. 100% of the people serve themselves more food on the larger plate. 100%. Wow. So using a smaller plate is just an absolute no-brainer way to cut down your portion sizes. Yeah. I read this book. It's called How to Eat Like a Tray. Okay. And the it's all handwritten, hand-illustrated. And the idea is just to eat in one sitting what you could hold in your hand, which is not a lot of food. Mm -hmm. When you have your hands together, how much can you really put in the palm of your hands? It's not a lot of food. And that that is that has been my go-to for probably at least nine yeah. years since I, I started reading that. And I've never gone back. And it really do, has made a big change in my oh, life. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant, again, a, the visual cues are so strong with food as well. They did another great study. I don't want to spoil the book for you, but where they gave people shakes, the exact same amount of shake, one, they blew up with air. So they spun it, filled it full of air. So it filled up the entire cup. The second group got the exact same amount, but it wasn't blown up with air. So it was half the cup. Then they monitored what they ate for lunch. The half cup drinkers ate, I forget the percentage, but significantly more than those who had the full cup. Those of the full cup claim to be full. Those of the half cup claim not to be full. So mm. exact same calories. So you can't rely on calories. You got to use visual cues. There's multiple things. And when you're trying to lose weight, you have to realize to me, and I used to tell my clients this, Losing weight, quitting heroin can be significantly easier because when you quit heroin or alcohol, not to belittle those journeys, but you never have to have heroin again. Quitting, you can't quit food. You have to reestablish a relationship with it. That's really challenging. I liken it to if you were to break up with a spouse and they moved to England and you stayed in, in North America, that breakup is significantly easier than if that spouse and you decide to stay in the same house and just get a second bedroom. Then it's going to be a, a, a really tough change over the course of a year or two to finally rebuild a dynamic that works. And with food, you're breaking up with it, but you're still living with it. You still need it. And it's a... You rely on yeah. it. Yeah. So you have a lot of work to do. And the nice thing is for anybody trying to lose weight, the average success rate is about, for long-term weight loss, is in the 5% mark. So it's not, if you are, if you have tried and have not succeeded, don't beat yourself up about it. It's seven to 12 attempts to maintain your weight loss. Seven to 12 times, before, and that's average. So you may be at 14, you may have done it in six. You may have done it in one. I'm really glad you brought that up because I know people do beat themselves up and it's a wonderful reminder to to be gentle with yourself and just keep going. And I want to switch gears. Yeah, you got me all fired up now. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. We because we have a lot to talk about. So I want to switch gears because you are also a partner at MK Home Solutions. You do painting, remodeling, landscaping decks, all kinds of great work. Yeah. And there's something that I think it's valuable in working with your hands. Mm -hmm. So there's a quote, Andy Rooney, my favorite ever curmudgeon, yeah, said, don't, <laughs> he said, don't rule out working with your hands. It does not preclude using your head. Yeah. 
And today we're always telling kids they have to go to college, they have to go to college. And some do have to go to college. Mm-hmm. But we also have trades that need to continue to maintain our nation. Mm-hmm. So what brought you to using your hands? You've obviously have many different talents and interests. So when did you realize that you could do painting and remodeling remodeling and landscaping and decks and building? <laughs> well, it's kind of a, a serendipitous journey, to be honest with you. I, I had left personal training, strength training, coaching, uh, many reasons brought me to the end of that career. I uh, no regrets, loved the career, met incredible people. Even, side note, met a lady who housed Nelson Mandela when he was hiding in his teens. So I met some phenomenal wow. people. And I, I could tell you how I could write a book on the incredible people I met who helped shape me to other places in life and taught me. But And you should. You know, there's so many things. So I decided when I left, I needed to find, I took a couple, I sold my company, sold the medical clinic. And I took a bit of time off to go back to school. And really, I wanted to raise my daughter. I had been recently divorced and I wanted to to raise my daughter and I wanted time because I've always wanted to be, I just love being a parent. I love, it's my favorite thing. So I took those years and she had daycare, but I would, you know, was able to pick her up early and I started going to school for business, a master's in business and what was called here in Canada, I don't, I don't think in the States, it's called the CGA. It's basically a chartered accountant now. There was no passion. It was just something I thought, oh, it's an intelligent move. I'll get a job and I'll live out my years making a an adult choice by getting a real job. And during my first year in school, a friend of mine reached out to me. Her brother-in-law had a quick, very sudden diagnosis of kidney cancer. And his contractor had let him down. He was in the middle of financing two houses to move and the contractor hadn't shown up. He had to go for surgery within three weeks of his diagnosis. She said, is there any chance you could help out with this house? And I said, she knew I was handy. I said, sure. So I helped out. And at the end of it, he paid me. I said, I don't want any money. He wrote me a check for a week's work and I wasn't expecting it. And I got this check and I like, thanks. And then I came home, went back to what I was doing. And a couple weeks later, his mother-in-law called me and asked if I'd come paint her place. And I thought, I got time. So I did it. And I was playing guitar with the guy and I was talking about the painting thing. And he said, well, I do commercial real estate. Do you want to come paint a warehouse? And I said, sure. And then I got another job and then someone else reached out to me. And then I hired somebody to work for me. And it just, I just enjoyed it. I just, and I was back meeting people. And I was, you know, I'm a contractor, but every job I get, I've been blessed with these incredible, just meeting the the most phenomenal clients and learning. And one had me over last week for coffee to talk about some spiritual stuff. I'm a Christian. So he talked, you know, some Christian stuff and just shared with me. And I've just met some incredible people and made some incredible relationships. So the jobs I I am so happy I went this route and I never planned. There was no business plan. It just fell into my lap from the universe. (laughs) As you said, you kind of just, as a door opened, you walked through. I believe in that when you do that, when you allow yourself to be open to opportunity and then you do a good job, obviously, wherever you go, Mm -hmm. that things do evolve as they should. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's been so lovely. 
I like to say I wish I'd done this 20 years ago, but then I would have missed a whole <laughs> bunch of phenomenal things that were gifted to me from from people. I really also just want to share before I get to our next topic for this conversation is that I respect you for that decision because, you know, we're talking about jobs here and obviously parenting is the most important Mm -hmm. job. Raising an independent, caring, kind, and smart daughter is, is the most important job you will ever have. I appreciate the fact that you recognize that. I think a father has an opportunity to set the standard high for her expectations of what a male if she decides to have a male partner in her life, I think a father has an opportunity to, to set that standard of what she'll expect from a male in her life. And mm-hmm. I could be wrong. That's not scientific. That's just me observational over years, seeing girls with strong father relationships and how they are versus girls with fathers that aren't, aren't maybe. And again, there's always people who don't fit that, that mold. But I, anyway, and I just love her to death. She's a great kid. I've been gifted a great kid. And trust me, it's not karma. <laughs> I didn't deserve it based on my childhood. But Aww. Uh, Aww. yeah. So this podcast is called Gratitude to Latitude. Mm-hmm. And I just want to uh, publicly share what you did for me. And then in our, our final time of the show, I want to I want to touch on agoraphobia mm-hmm. too. But you know, gratitude is the ability to be happy for and recognize all all that you already have more so than wanting. It's a matter of waking up every day and knowing that you have many things for which to be grateful and continuing that thought process throughout the day, even when difficult things happen, uh, or at least doing your best to do so. You and I connected on Instagram. You mailed a leather-bound notebook, diary, whatever you want to call it, to me out of nowhere. And it was just such a generous and kind gesture. Is that something you do a lot? Well, not to devalue yours, but I have done it, yes. When I look at, like, for you, for instance, and there's different reasons. So for you, I didn't know you. I think we might have connected through Build Your Life Resume, or is that how we connected? Were you part of that? Yes, through uh, Jesse's yeah. class, Build Your Life yeah. Resume. And just so when I, I started to follow you, and, and just when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I try very careful to keep my feed very clean of negativity. And just whenever I saw you, just you just made me smile. I would just see you do stuff, and you'd be dancing or hula hooping, or and it just <laughs> you gave me a joy in my heart. And to me, you're putting that out for you were just you just gave me a smile. It, no different than seeing a beautiful sunrise or a sunset or a bird, there's a joy you feel. I saw your Instagram post. I just always felt joy. So I wanted to say thank you. And that was sort of how I said thank you. And I, that was my thank you for bringing that joy to me that you didn't bring on purpose, but you gave me. So some people would say, so you, you mailed a gift to someone you've never mm-hmm. met. And I absolutely would do the same thing. I do the same thing. And I consider myself kind of an outlier. Mm-hmm. So so what would you say? Do you believe that other people should reach out in that way more so than... Um, it depends. Kind of keeping that joy to themselves? I think it's... I think of it this way. I can't think of a phone call I've made to complain about customer service. But I can think about 30 I have made to thank you, to tell a manager about a good service. And I think if we focus more on that, 
you have no choice but to build a positive the gratitude builds resilience i mean when you start to look and see more positive things i was taught now again i mentioned before i'm christian and i was taught years ago a few years ago if you feel any kind of nudge do it that's god telling you to do it that's from the christian point of view you can think of it as the universe telling you to do it the energy it doesn't matter to me what your beliefs are but and again i don't want to get into things i've done but Last week, I was at a restaurant, and I just saw a lady dining alone, and I was with a group. She didn't look unhappy. She didn't look broken, and it was a a restaurant in a, very afflu- a fairly affluent neighborhood. I'm not a big spender. Don't be wrong. I'm not a rich guy, but it's a nice restaurant, and I just, I got the, just, it came to me that nudge to buy her meal anonymously, so mm. yeah, I, I, I flipped and flopped and flipped and flopped, and I got more concerned as the night went on. I thought... I'm going to be more upset if I missed the opportunity. So I took the opportunity. She has no idea who did it for her. But it, it was, it allowed me to leave thinking it was, I got the, I get a great joy from giving. So I think to, to answer your question in a very babbly way, if you feel like giving, just give. What's the worst that can happen? Right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I think as long as you give with a good heart, I wouldn't give with a heart of, I don't give to network. If I give to network, you know I'm giving you to network. I'll, I'll give you this. <laughs> if I said I want to try these, this new product at your house, I'll do it for free. It's a, it's not a gift. I'm giving it to you to benefit me. But the other stuff, you never know. It could be the difference between. I met a guy who never returns emails and returned emails to a guy, and he gets a lot of. He's a, in the journalism field, so he gets a lot of emails. And he decided to correspond with this fellow. A year later, the guy reached back out. He was actually trying to commit suicide that day. And because this journalist wow. just decided to answer the, you ne- and I know that's a dramatic turn from where we we're going, but the point is you never know who you're reaching out to and where they're... Listen to your inner voice. What it's, do you got to lose? It's so powerful. 20, 30 bucks. It really is powerful. Yeah. So I know that you have had your struggle. You have suffered from anxiety, depression, and agoraphobia. Mm-hmm. Agoraphobia is defined as extreme or irrational fear of entering open or crowded spaces, mm-hmm. of leaving one's own home, or being in places which escape is difficult. Yep. Not something that we have talked about on this show before, and not something that a lot of people talk mm-hmm. about publicly. Mm-hmm. It was humiliating at first. Now I'm very open about it, but it was very humiliating because I was a guy who spent years, I fought martial arts, I competed in martial arts, I was a mountain bike racer, I was a, I was a man. And it was very emasculating to suddenly not be able to walk to a mailbox that was maybe 30 seconds from my home without complete terror, crippling terror. That yeah, was an interesting journey for sure. Did it just occur out of- How far back do you want me to go? I've always been an anxious guy. I just thought I was different as a kid a bit. I thought I was a bit different. Because I would, my friends would do stupid things. And I was always a bit risk averse. I wanted to be cool, but I was risk averse. And which, as we talked about earlier, probably saved me a lot of heartache and a lot of mistakes. But I was just driving one day and I was just, I felt, I didn't feel right. And I had what I found out later was a panic attack. I started to feel like I needed an ambulance, like I needed to pull over and get an ambulance. And I, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't have a symptom, yet I felt like I was dying. And I know to the 
regular ear, it's the most incredible thing to try to understand. Easy to articulate. Best articulation I've heard is, imagine the fear you would have if somebody walked in on gunpoint to you right now. Now take the stimulus away, but have that fear come out of nowhere. Mm. So it's really a confusing bodily feeling. I've been working a lot of hours. So I kind of likened to that. I went to work. I tried to work. You know, that day I took off. I went and just, I didn't, I didn't know what it was yet. I went and sat by the water. I relaxed and I was tired. Then I just, I went to work the next day and the sales rep from one of the companies I deal with came in to the job site and we were mid conversation. I looked at him and I just said, I'll be right back. And I just went, I left and drove home. I just had this fear. I just needed to get out of there. I didn't know. I thought I was going to pass out. I, I was confused. Even driving, my hands were tingling. I questioned if I should be driving, but I kept going because fear was driving me home. So it was fight or flight, essentially. I was flight, full flight. And then it just started to, and what happened, I can explain it to her if we have time, take about two minutes to explain it, is let's say you walk into Home Depot, because I use that store often. I had a panic attack in Home Depot. You don't decide not to go back to Home Depot, but very much, I liken it to if I said to you, Jody, would you like a punch in the stomach? You would say, no. You wouldn't think about the feeling of my hand hitting your stomach, the wind being knocked out, the discomfort. You would just automatically, you know, you don't want a punch in the stomach. Your brain starts to learn, I don't want to go to Home Depot. It's that simple. Right. And Association by association. It's like each panic attack gives you a small version of PTSD to that moment. So now Home Depot became a place I couldn't go. Going back to work in that house, I never went back. My crew took care of that house for a month and a half. It was a huge job. And I never stepped foot back in that house again. And I didn't realize I started shopping at Home Hardware, which is a local store here. It's a smaller, very small store. But you can get everything you can. You pay a little more. But I started to justify it too with like, well, I want to support a local store and you make these justifications. Then you have a panic attack at home, home hardware, and you know, and your world shrinks very organically till suddenly you're in prison. So it, it was. So how do you overcome agoraphobia? The agoraphobia. So first you got to recognize it. So I tried a bunch of things. I tried what's called gradual exposure. So I'd go to a place that I was fearful of. And I would set my watch and I would stand in there for a minute. That was what the psychologist gave me. And when you know you have to stand someone for a minute and you're terrified, I mean, the terror is so real, I can't even begin to explain it. Even though you're aware, you're, you're, you're aware of what it is, you still, that you cannot beat the fear. I'm a logical guy. I'm well-read. I studied, I read everything I could about this whole system but yet I could not beat it. So I could sit logically think, I know what this is. 30 seconds in, I would actually run, not walk. I would run to my car, to my quote unquote safe place, mm. drive home and sleep for three hours. So I started with a medication that didn't agree with me and it can happen. I'm not anti-medication, not pro-medication. I think that each person's journey, that is up to you to decide. Medication in my case, the first medication I took destroyed me. So I went off. Then I became obsessed with beating it. And I spent four weeks with psychologists and I really four to six weeks and I tried really hard. All I would do is get up, 
go downstairs with my telephone and I would sit in this chair all day long and play whatever video game I could find to take my brain off life. And then I, one night, had planned a suicide for myself because I was just tired. Honestly, I was just tired. I was just... There was no- you couldn't find an answer for how to beat this condition. And I was reading online. There was a, a lady I saw online. She, like At first, I met, I, I met these people online. It was really cathartic to hear other people's stories. I'm like, wow, I'm not alone. But then like one lady has, I think she was 30 or 31 years trapped in her house. And I thought, at the time I was 44-ish, 45. And I thought, okay, so basically I'm just gonna, this is the rest of my life. I just got tired of the same thing every day. There was no sadness. There was no woe was me. It was just fatigue. I was just tired of being depressed and being sad and being scared. Do you still face this today or? Now when I face it, I can be somewhere and get start to get a little bit of a feeling of panic attack. But at this point, I just, my brain goes, oh, that's what that is. And you just move on. Like, oh, that's what it is. It's just stimulus, stimulus, stimuli and just. It Excellent. Me. I'm so glad to hear that. I thank you so much for spending this time with me today, for sharing your your story, your background, your hope, your gratitude, your generosity. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. It was, I was humbled to be invited. This is WCN, the Whole Care Network. You talk, we listen.